Welcome to season three of the podcast, now called The Brett Cowell Show, where I'll be talking to interesting people about life and work. This week, I'm speaking with artist, composer, and vocal coach, Damon Clark. I felt like it was a really special time to speak with Damon. After years of performing around the world, he's recently begun to tell his story by releasing new music, including his latest single, Holy. You can hear more about that in the show. But what I took away from this is that it's never too early or too late to know and love yourself and see what directions that takes you in. Uh, we also talk about music, cults, cooking, and how you can create from wherever you are and the world will find and reach out to you. I want to say a personal thanks to you, the audience, who've listened over the past five years. We got to something like 50 countries, and this week I want to give a shout out to Frankfurt in Germany. Hello, Frankfurt, for being one of the top listening locations. Get in touch with us at podcast at totallifecomplete.com. Let me know what you like or don't like about the show and who you'd like to hear more of. All the best. Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for, for uh, making time to do this. It's, uh, I know you're a busy guy, jet-setting around Mexico. We'll talk about that <laughs> and, and other places. Mm. And welcome to the audience here watching in. So the first question I normally have on the show, and we just were talking about parties, is how do you introduce yourself at a party to someone you don't know? I usually say something awful, so that's probably the how I introduce myself. And then they're either interested in who I am and ask my name or they run away, which has literally happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're probably quite good responses depending on the party. Anyway, that sounds great. So let's start with the music. Um, Now you can go to your, your favorite streaming service and there's been a flourish of, of new music coming out. So just talk about how that came about. Well, um, before the pandemic, because every you know this is that's going to be a, a, a new that's going to be a third epic, right? There's BC and, and CE, right? So then we're also going to have um, BP and and uh, AP, right? Before pandemic and after pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, and at the beginning of 2020, um, I released a song called "Love Me Now." And how I got to that point, I've had many projects out over the course of years, but. I did not own any of those projects because I did not write them or I wrote the lyrics, but I was writing for other people or I I was singing on the thing. Um, It was my voice, but somebody else wrote it. I I never fully owned anything or they were covers of jazz tunes, right? At a certain point, I was doing a lot of jazz and I was doing covers of jazz tunes. Um, In fact, the last project I did before this were, were four Chick Corea Stanley Clark tunes and then and then a few standards i put out some of the projects some of the projects that i had access to but um the original producer put out none of it he made physical copies and did not digitally distribute so it kind of left me in the lurch because i could not get the rest of the project to have a full album block so it 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 kind of i got to the point where i was like i need a i need a project out here so i collaborated with a producer and um, he evaporated into the ether along with the stems and everything else. And then I collaborated with another producer and he died. He better be dead. Um, I haven't heard from him, but <laughs> like if I run into him, I'm like, ghosts are tangible, punch to the throat. So anyway, <laughs> and then it's, but it's just over and over for six years, I kept 
uh, running into folks, oh, I really want to work with you. I really love your voice and blah, blah, blah. And we would start to work or songwriters, right? I have confidence in my ability as a songwriter. But one thing that I had not been doing is writing my own story. And I was afraid to write my own story. I didn't realize that until late 2019. I didn't realize that I was afraid to write my own story, right? That I was afraid for people to perceive me. I didn't realize that. Like, that was not why I wasn't writing in my own head, yeah, right? It was yeah. like, I'm not good enough to write a song for myself because I'm too close to me. That's mm-hmm. what I was thinking. But the reality was um, I was still holding on to being judged, right, by by my parents, perhaps, or siblings, or whoever, or <clears throat> not necessarily the world at large, because how many things have I done in the public sphere that have been stupid, but titillating and entertaining, right? <laughs> That's the important part. Right, yeah. right, exactly. So the long and the short, I know I've gone long, but the, the long and the short is, um, at a certain point, I basically was like, I'm being held back by the fact that I'm desiring to collaborate. I really wanted to collaborate with other artists, writers or producers or whatever. And I was being failed. And when I get into a project, I'm, I want to see it to completion. And I want to see it to completion on a timeline because I like, I've spent some time in the corporate world, but even before that I was, I've always been very organized, like very Mm -hmm. organized. Um, and I've found that musicians, I've always known this, outside of the classical world, musicians are not particularly organized. They don't really do paperwork. They don't really, like the minority of them do, right? Um, and then people get in their feelings and then I can't, I can't do this anymore because I feel a certain kind of way. It doesn't matter how I feel about a thing, I'm going to complete it, mm-hmm. right? If, if, if circumstances in my life change, unless I'm dead or hospitalized, um, hopefully not in that order. I'm going to complete a pro- whatever that project is. I'm going to complete, especially if other people are relying on me. And, and I found that that was not, that had not been true for the majority of the artists that I was working with. So I was forced to write my own project and I thought, okay, I can do this. I've written many songs. And then a few things happened. I started writing, writing a song, right? And I didn't like the song because it, it felt like somebody else needed to be singing it because I had not written for me. And I had to do some soul searching. I won't call it soul searching. I had to be honest, right? Soul searching's different. You don't know what the problem is. I knew what the problem was. And I had to be honest with myself about the fact that I, I did not want to be seen, right? You can hide when it's not your words. You can hide behind that. Mm-hmm. The audience doesn't know you're hiding behind it, but you know, you're hiding behind it. You know, this person is telling your story or telling a story that is similar, adjacent to your experience, but it's not exactly your story. And I had talked in front of massive crowds about various things that had happened to me in my childhood, teenage years and 20s and 30s, very traumatic things, right, that people don't all, all, you know, don't willingly talk about, but because I'm involved in in healing spaces and things like that but yet i wouldn't put it in a song isn't that weird so i made the determination that if i can stand in front of a a group of grown men and talk about my experience with childhood abuse that they had also experienced some of which whom had also experienced that's why they were there why am i not being honest and writing a song that's truly my experience so the first song i actually wrote about i mean wrote was love me now 
And it was about my um, very first relationship where I ended up in an abusive relationship and I didn't veil anything. And also about how it was my parents who taught me how to be in an abusive relationship and how I judged them, right? Um, just to end up like them. Mm -hmm. And one of my parents recognized that I was, it was kind of like, I'm, I'm, I get it. And the other parent was like, I'm offended that you, you know, and I was like, and I had to explain it to that parent. And that parent went, oh, you, you, you're, you're saying that you were stupid. Good. <laughs> so, and you know, so that, that's how that first song came about. And once I got over that, that hump, mm -hmm. of, okay, my, I wrote, my first song was about like my parents felt relationship and how I judged them and, and ended up in a, in a relationship that was really, really bad too. I can write about anything, you know, because who, who can judge you harder or, or who can you feel more protective of than your own parents, right? So that was out in the ether and that's kind of catapulted into song after song. So this has been cathartic. It sounds like it might have It been. has been. Yeah, it's been cathartic. And also it's caused me to, even though you, even, even though you do therapy, there's something about and even therapists will sometimes have you write about your experiences, depending on the type of the, the type of therapy approach that they take with you, which I've done that I've journaled about my day and brought those journals to the therapist. And, but there's something that takes it a little bit further when you turn it into a piece of art, when you memorialize it, not just in words, but in your own voice and then in a melodic way. Right. So it's been cathartic is, is yes but also informative. I'm, I'm more informed about those situations, even than when I was in therapy and, pr mm -hmm. and processing them, right? And even when I gained some perspective because of distance, it's crazy. <laughs> so how's the response been? Because you've had an audience for, for a while, uh, you've got a lot of followers. Um, how's the response been from them? People were ready. So um, my audience has been asking for a project for six years. Well, uh, prior to, you know, the releases about a little less than six years, right? They're like, where is my project? You know, I love this stuff you have out, but where's the, where's your stuff? So everything from prior to this new epoch have been uh, pulled off of all, all streaming platforms. And only my new music is there because it's very different from what I was doing before, right? And the audience reception has been amazing. It's been amazing. It's been more, you know, you, you, you give birth to children and you, and you do what you can with them and then they go out into the world and that it is what it is at that point, right? And you hope mm -hmm. the world accepts them and you hope they do good and you hope they help people and you hope that they, they find healthy and, and symbiotic relationships, mutualistic relationships. That's kind of how these songs, I've just... Did, I gave birth to them. Mm -hmm. I raised them right. So I thought, you know, so I want to believe and I've sent them out into the world and it seems that they're finding mutualistic relationships. It seems that they're helping people. And, um, it seems that they may be like their dad, goofy and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and there's that kind of universal aspect of music where, you know, you're saying you're singing your heart out about your things and then people are actually in their own world thinking about how they, their own lives and how that that's them it's just magic alchemy i don't know whatever is going on there oh yeah <laughs> we're going to move on to so uh spirituality or, or just that you know john batista at the grammy said that music is his spiritual practice i just wanted you to reflect on that in terms of 
your practices and, and music? That, that is an interesting question. I grew up in a cult, but um, I was never a believer. So I, I was the odd duck out always, and I knew it, and I felt it at a really early age, like nine or 10 years old, you know, when you start becoming really cognizant of the world. And when I turned 18, it, I, it was enough of that for me. Now, granted, being in a cult has its own ethos. Um, but as I got out into the to the world as an adult, 18, an adult, not so much, but out on my own, right? Um, I explored various churches. I explored various religions, various faith and spiritual practices. And, um, and then I also um, have a background in theology anyway, a degree, degree in music and a background in theology as well, um, and, and sort of world religion. So that's always fascinated me. I think it's amazing. I think it's and people don't realize how much of their lives are informed by religious practices and not often not just one, right? Often, even though like the United States is Christian, there are many, many, many denominations and those denominations that value and prioritize different things in periphery to following Christ, right? And it informs the, the types of food we eat, the colors we think are important, the precious metals and stones that we think are important, how we interact with one another, et cetera, et cetera. Even if we become agnostic or atheist, our lives are still kind of centered around practices that really are not religious, but but religion has kind of informed those, whatever, you get what I'm saying. So as I was going about exploring various religions, finding myself uh, studying Jainism, finding myself um, studying Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, the various uh, Christian denominations across the spectrum, um, I found myself fascinated with all of it, but still feeling totally disconnected, right? And pick and choose the various things that are more humanistic. I, I, I like to pick those humanistic things, but the spiritual has never really appealed to me, maybe because I am more materialist than, than spiritual, but I have had experiences where I thought, well, maybe maybe spiritual is a thing. Maybe being in touch with spirituality is a thing. So I have had those experiences, but they were never connected to music, ironically. For me, music is more therapy, more therapeutic and communicative. And I don't know why that is for me. Um, and I do have many friends who are not religious, but music is like church. Music is like, is very spiritual for them. And I feel very deeply connected to music. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what, what life is without it as, as not just a listener, but as a creator and all that. I don't know what that looks like. And I have never known what that looked like because that's always been where I've lived and like this art space mentally and emotionally. But music has been more, more like the parent when my parents were not parenting. It has been the lover when I've been single. It has been the nurturer when I needed care. It's been all these things for me. But I've never really tapped into a spiritual place with it. Yes, emotional, but not necessarily spiritual. But I've experienced spiritual what I want to think of as a, a spiritual experience, but it was not even connected. To, disappointingly, it was not connected to music. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, now you're sending uh, your children off into the world. Then yes. it's changing other people's lives. So maybe that's spiritual in, in some way. 
I hope so. Holy, that that was my nod to mm-hmm. um, my experiences exploring the Baptist church and the Kojic church and some Methodist churches because I did not grow up in a, a, a black church with gospel music, right? Um, that was something that I started learning about in my 30s and really digging into in my 30s. Although R&B and soul and all those things have elements of gospel because they all, all, all that comes from the black Baptist church specifically. But that, that the holy really was my nod to that. Ironically, those words, holy, worship me slowly, let me be your only, let me in. That felt like a spiritual experience, but it was carnal, right? Carnalita. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking about Madonna, I think, in the 80s now, uh-huh. for some reason, I don't, I don't know why. Uh, okay, um, let's talk about coaching. Let's talk yeah. about the other side of music with, yeah. with coaching. I mean, can you teach somebody to sing? Absolutely. Anybody can learn to sing. Not having the muscle memory of tone, that's not a problem that's insurmountable, right? That's absolutely not an insurmountable problem. And when the majority of people that I have met that say, oh, well, I can't sing, it's because they don't have tone memory, because they sing off key, off pitch, right? They can't match tones, but that's not any more a difficult issue than a breath, a person who has this, who struggles with breath support or a person who struggles with play, where they place their voice, right? Those are not insurmountable issues. And what's the role of confidence, building confidence, encouraging that? Well, I always tell people if Yoko Ono could make a career <laughs> screeching into a space and banging things. Um, but it's how you screech and what things you bang. That's the artistry in it. And that's, about, and that's about making choices, right? So it's not about having a beautiful voice. I, I, I tell my clients this all the time. It doesn't matter what your voice sounds like because your voice is a physical – your, your voice is, is genetics, right? Um, what my voice sounds like. It sounds like my dad's voice. We sound almost identical when we sing, which is crazy, right? Although there's a slight inflection that sounds like my mom's brother too. Slight, slight tonal thing, but dad and I sound very, very much alike when we sing. And that's because these are physical things that my genetics gave me, right? And, and, and all this, which spins my tone a certain way. And you, you're not going to change that, period. End of story. It's genetics. I could go out and get a tan, and be a little bit darker, but my skin is going to go back to its natural state. I can dye my hair, but it's going to grow out into that's, that's the core of who you are. Worry not about that. Get that out of your head that you have to have a beautiful voice. Joe Cocker did not have a beautiful voice. Carmen McRae did not have a traditionally beautiful voice. Maria Callas did not have a traditionally beautiful voice. And yet they, Maria Callas specifically changed the mu the, the classical music industry, not just opera, she changed the classical music industry with what she was doing, conducting everything with her skill set. The key is accepting the voice that you have and building on that voice a communication style. I'm obviously singing technique, but a communication style that is confident, that speaks of, I have something to say and you're going to hear it in this voice that I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and there are many examples of artists who have done that, who do not have traditionally beautiful, who don't have all the range. The lead singer of Jefferson Airplane, she had about a, a little over an octave. And most singers can command two, right? But she made a whole ass career, <laughs> right? And we love her. Are you a driven person and what drives you? 
ask all those producers that I <laughs> that I probably it's probably it, I blame them, but it was probably me too. I I um, am very driven. I think because of having been told no. Well, actually, there are people who have been told no, and they just don't, right? But I'm a little bit of an a-hole when it comes to the things that I want to do. Um, people say, oh, Tauruses are so stubborn. Not so, I'm not. I'm not stubborn, except when it comes to things that I really care about that I want to do. And if somebody tells me no, I, f- I look at no as, as a temporary setback, right? No doesn't ever really mean no. But then again, when I was growing up, my mom would say no to everything. And no meant no, but no also meant let me think about it. So that really, that may have been part of my formation. I'm extremely driven. If I want to do something, you can rest assured it will get done. Where does that come from? And I think you've alluded to you know, growing up, et cetera. Is that where it's from? Or? The being told you can't, growing up in that cult, right? I was being told you can't do this, you can't do that, those sorts of things. And having a burning, feeling highly unfulfilled as a kid, but then sometimes being allowed to do some of these things, right? So I was in musicals. I was doing some musical things, music things here and there. And at a certain point, I had to make a decision. Is is this, are these, this is a group of people who clearly don't really care about my future as it looks to me, right? Because culture about control, they want you to do what they want you to do. I had to make a decision. Let's just say I didn't want to be mad at me because I let them inform my future. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That was basically the the decision I had to make. Am I going to be mad at me? Am I going to be disappointed and, and unfulfilled because I let other people make decisions about a future that I have to walk through? That really was the catalyst for me. And some people, they never make that decision to, to walk away. And I'm not saying they're in a good place, but that's the decision they made. But I knew I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I could not stay. Um, I could not allow myself to just be what they wanted me to be because it was uncomfortable. You know, we talked a little bit about success before. Are you successful? <laughs> I don't know. I'll ask my peers. <laughs> what is success you know, to you? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's funny because we all perceive other people as doing so much better than us. I talk mm-hmm. to musicians all the time mm-hmm. about that. Oh, yeah. So he, he's on tour and da, da, da. Yeah, he's on tour with somebody that he hates and they treat him horribly. And we're here enjoying wine, right? <laughs> and the gig we're going to go to is awesome or, or whatever. I do really believe that I have been and am successful. Um, you may not know my name, but you probably don't know Sufjan Stevens' name either, right? And he's a world-class musician mm-hmm. or whoever. There's this idea in the not musician world, and you, you know this, mm-hmm. and, and not podcaster, not, but people who are not in our fields are, are the, fields that we, the fields that we overlap in and all this. There's this idea that if you're not Beyonce or if you're not Joe Rogan, or if you're not these people, that you're not successful and that you can't reach those heights because they're whatever, you know, in the whatever industry. And what people don't realize is that there are many, 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 many thousands of jobs in these various industries, not just the Beyonce job, right? Not just the Joe Rogan job or whoever. There are many, many thousands of jobs. And also there are many levels, right? So you could be the president of a community bank 
or you could be the president of Chase. And it depends on what your goal is and what your and the type of work is. It's all going to be work, but the type of work you're willing to put in. I never wanted to be the president of Chase. I wanted to be a respected artist, but not an A-list artist because A-list artists have zero, zero privacy. Their lives are kind of and there are people who thrive in that, and that's fine for them. I didn't want that. I wanted to be well-respected in the industry by industry professionals, but not so well-known that I have to wear sunglasses and a giant hat and a hoodie and a, and a, and a you know, a funeral veil just to go to the grocery store. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think I've achieved that. I think I've achieved that balance of my audience knows who I am in various countries, but I can still in every single one of those countries go to the grocery store and meet a few people who know who I am, who are beautiful. I have the most lovely, most respectful, loyal, and beautiful fans you could ever imagine. They're just lovely. But I've never had to run out of a place because a mob is, is trying to get a lock of my hair. And I'm glad. <laughs> and I feel like I'm successful. <laughs> you know, you've talked about, you know, it's obviously been your expression and getting the songs out there, but now they're out there. Do you want them to be successful as opposed to... Absolutely. There's this idea in the arts and entertainment industry that artists are owned by the public. And I've always hated that. I've always thought it was horrific. The art is owned by the people who purchase it, but you're not purchasing me. The art and, what, and the free media that we may put out, right, is, is free to the public. But you're not, I'm not free to the public. I basically will be the Johnny Depp of music. Well, pre-Amber Heard Johnny Depp of music. You will not know anything about me unless I tell you <laughs> about me. I will not be ex- as accessible unless I choose to be accessible. And it's because I do believe that the movie industry, particularly post, post studio era, it's after the studio era, right? Has kind of um, created this narrative that, that, the public owns that you as the public, we as the public, right? Cause we're also a part of, but own these artists in a way we have ownership in these artists. And that's a miserable, I can't even imagine. Like if, if we were all as audience members to put ourselves in that place, you'd be missed. Like nobody would want to do this. I, I hope those, I hope these songs go like triple platinum, you know? Um, but I'm also realistic about the fact that they may not, and it's okay. You know, it's perfectly fine with me. But if they should, if they should, and I hope they do. <laughs> it's kind of to your point of, um, you know, not being hounded by people and not feeling that you have to, that everybody owns you and you, you're trying to live up to other people's expectations. Um, how does Dallas play into all of that? You know, you could, there's this kind of prevailing idea you've got to be in LA or, or, New, or New York or something to, to be successful. I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, um, Erica Badu lives here, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Liz Michael lives here. Um, many, many, many people live here. Um, I am an I'm an LA native. That's home. Um, I've lived in New York. Um, I sang opera and did some musical theater when I was in New York. I love visiting New York. It is a miserable place to live if you don't make in the like. If I had to move to New York, I, I'd have to make at a minimum a minimum of $50 million a, a, a month or so. Like there, there's no way that I could live there without being like a cajillionaire because I like things and I don't want to live in a hovel. So, <laughs> and so Dallas affords me a, 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 
a um, uh, a comfortable lifestyle and also allows me to have enough income in order to produce the music that I want to produce and produce the shows that I want to produce because I'm also a show producer, live show producer, pre-pandemic. Um, so it allows me to have a comfortable lifestyle. And what I have found, and this is to other artists who, who may be considering moving to LA or New York, there are reasons to move to LA and New York for sure. Two of my clients moved to LA. They're doing extremely well. They are model, they're singers, but they ended up doing modeling and modeling is what's providing them very comfortable income to live in LA while they pursue their music careers. Right. Mm, mm. Um, I'm past my modeling days. Uh, and even if I got fit, which I won't because I like to eat. Yeah. I, I modeled for until I was like 30. That's not going to happen for me. So I have to be realistic about what I'm willing to tolerate and I'm not going to tolerate any kind of poverty whatsoever because I'm too old and I like things. <laughs> um, and, but then also what I have realized is that Dallas, Dallas is a rich resource for both coasts. Dallas has been a rich resource for both coasts for about 40 years, right? So when people want me, they reach out to me and I go to New York and I perform. When people want me, I go to LA and I perform. When they want me, I go to Paris and perform and they reach out, they do. So I have not had to be in New York or LA in order to work in New York or LA. I've not had to live in Paris in order to work in Paris or Toronto or any of the place or Mexico City where where I frequently perform. And, I, and I've never had to live in those places in order to work in those places. I was in Colorado first time I ever performed in um, Montreal and in Toronto. How, how is the creative community in Dallas? Oh, it's diverse. Um, I was talking to an artist from Austin yesterday and not to not to poo-poo on Austin, but Austin for me is a little one note. It's it basically centers around Americana and a little bit of roots music here and there. But I don't find that there are many, many genre offerings, right? Um, it has a small opera company, which is fabulous, and and some other things going on. I think they have like one blues artist who used to live here. But there's so much diversity here. Now there there is the idea that you could go to Austin and because you're the unique person that you'll get more work, but the venues cater to and are centered around a specific, a spe- specific niche of genres. So I love being in Dallas. I had the choice of Dallas or Houston when I was moving here. Um, and the reason I moved here from Colorado was because my sister was ill and we thought we weren't, we thought we were going to lose her. Um, and she's still with us. She, she uses her health to control us. <laughs> to control our movements in the world. <laughs> At least we tease her and say that. And she goes, mm-hmm. there is neo soul here. There is jazz. There is uh, progressive rock. There's punk. There's um, all kinds of Americana. There's blues. And there are venues, not one venue, but venues with an S to support all of it. And then a lot of the venues here support many, many, many types of music, right? There's an opera company here. There, There's there are con- a couple of three concert opera companies here. If you into that. there are many many chamber groups here. There's the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. There are a ton of orchestras, professional orchestras around DFW. There are many many choirs that you can get involved in. It's just there's an, a plethora of musical offerings and places to work here in DFW, or just to consume music and all kinds of music. So this was the this was the better choice for me. 
And then the, the theater scene here is like crazy. There's so many theaters here if you're into acting and, and musical or whatever. So that for me, um, as I was doing my research coming here, this was the better choice than Houston. Houston's a bigger city, but it actually has fewer offerings. And I really do love love the the art, the art that is happening in this city. It's so diverse. It's so diverse. Multiple mariachi mariachi bands, uh, several several Tejano bands, several Norteño bands. Like like there's I can't think of a thing that is not here. I can't. And multiple offerings of each of those things, not just the one little one little venue or one little niche. Okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sometimes this is uh, this, the show's kind of become a, a tourist uh, yeah, <laughs> thing yeah. for, for Dallas because I, I just moved here and be interested in things, and it surprises me because on, on one level you might think, oh, it doesn't have it's not necessarily all in your face all the time, but then once you get below the surface, there are all of these things oh. around. Once you've managed to meet a couple of people and, and navigate through there, so and I think there's no expectation probably in creativity about the way that you should do things that there might be maybe even in business here about the way that you should do things. I, I think that's my personal reflection anyway. I think it, the business side's probably a little bit uh, conservative and, and whatever, but the um, the people are just doing new stuff here and no one's telling you what to do. No, <laughs> it's true. So. This was also a city where I could produce shows for fairly and, and, and rent venues Whereas in New York, I mean, some of the smaller venues are thousands of dollars where there I spent, I'll spend like two, three hundred, five hundred bucks and get into a really, really nice, well-equipped venue to produce my own shows. So that's really important to me when you're trying to create an ethos around your art, right? That you have the, the autonomy and then you don't have to spend so much money on trying to create the buzz and the ethos and experiment with experiment as, as, as either new artists or artists that are changing, you know, changing to a different genre, whatever. It's really important that, that the community um, supports that rather than the community going, well, where's your 10 grand in order to do this thing, right? I found consistently that high quality venues are not that expensive here. They're not out of the budget of, um, individual artists or even artist collectives or et cetera, et cetera. This is the place where you can do a lot and, and the coasts will look at you and go, Oh, well, you're doing interesting work. Come, come to us. Are you happy? I'm very happy. I remember not being happy many, 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 many millennia ago. Um, and not believing that I could be not believing that that was a thing because it, it had been like 12 years, right? of misery and two years of therapy changed that. And I advocate for therapy often and as much as you need, just like, you know, when your throat hurts and you go to the doctor, go get it checked out because it could be something more serious. I'm very, very happy, you know, and I was just talking to a friend of mine about happiness and how it appears in the Western world versus uh, other parts of the world. And um, I think I'm more on the, we associate happy with elation or strong emotion as opposed to contentment. And in, in other parts of the world, they associate happiness with contentment. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where I am. And I'm consistently content. And then there are the moments like this where I get to be elated, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to see you again and connect with you after so, so long. Right, right. right. <laughs> that's cool. Well, thank you for saying that. And uh, th that's mutual, mate.
Are you, are you uh, much of a cook? You find oh. you in the kitchen. Uh, what, what, what would be on the menu? So my sisters always say that um, I can go into a pantry with nothing in it and come out with a, a five-course meal, and that's true because I've invested a lot of energy and time reading about reading about and experimenting experimenting with and eating world cuisine. As a kid, I, I would eat whatever, but I wasn't a foodie. I was not necessarily foodie. It was my when I became a teen and my grandmother gave me some books, a series of books called something about uh, uh, blah, 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 world cuisine, right? It was like 12 books. And it kind of went through all these different places. And I devoured those books. No recipes or anything. I devoured those books because they told this. Oh, and, the, and, and, and paella came about because in the fields, all this kind of stuff. Fascinating. And I lived in some of these countries, right? So I started cooking. Now, my mom had already taught me to cook by that point. I think I was like 14 when I got those books. My mom started teaching me to cook at age 12. My mom is a fabulous cook. She knows how to make anything, including, um, I think she went to culinary arts school, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to be a pastry chef. And she can bake anything. I hate baking. She can bake anything, like anything. She taught me how to palm different, you know, eyeball ingredients, all this kind of stuff. But cooking was like utilitarian up to that point. Those books made me go, oh, this is an art. This is a, a science. This is a creative thing where you can experiment and, and, all, and infuse and do all these things. And from that point forward, as a friend of mine once said to me, uh, he's an actor, he said, Damon, you cook like a fat black man. <laughs> that's a great compliment i think it was a great it was a great and i was like oh <laughs> okay well to, to close off what do you want people to do immediately after listening to this <laughs> oh goodness um i want them to go listen to my music and and um also go to my instagram and laugh about some stuff because you know i i like to make people laugh I like to feed people, but no, go, uh, and also be kind to yourself. The world is hard. Speaking specifically to the, the artists out there and really everyone, but, but I want to also make sure artists hear me. We don't have to be hard on ourselves. I don't have to be hard on me there. Uh, and this is not my advice. This is something somebody told me many years ago um, when I was being real hard on me and I was criticizing myself and doing all this thing. He said, you know, Damon, you need to be kinder to yourself because there are 10 people lined up waiting in the wings, ready to be hard on you. Don't take away their job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I listened and I received it, but it took me a while to get to the point to where I could go, why am I beating myself up? I'm just one person. I, I can only do what I can do. And also, I don't want to be doing two jobs, right? <laughs> I don't want to do my job and someone else's job. So be kind, be kind to yourself. Stop beating yourself up over things that you think that you could have done better or that you haven't accomplished because there's still time. There's still time. And you will shorten your time on this earth if you beat yourself up, if you, if you create problems that are not there. So that's, that's my little, that's the thing that I want people to know. <laughs> Damon, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you.